0: Well, we'll get into the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our study of this great epistle and we are, uh, believe it or not, nearing the end and the conclusion of this great text. And this morning, we're looking at a passage that I would like to simply entitle Final Exhortations. Final Exhortations. And we're we'll reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. Paul writes this, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Well, a brief recap of the book of Philippians before we come to this text. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Philippians, we know that this great epistle can be summarized into three main sections. The first main section dealt with perspective in trials. In chapter 1, Paul gave his perspective in his current imprisonment, and he expressed his joy despite the trials that he was enduring. Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He's facing death for the cause of Christ, and yet he says in chapter 1, verse 18, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice rejoice he rejoices because the gospel's being advanced he rejoices because Christ is being proclaimed he rejoices even in the face of possible death because he says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain so the first section dealt with perspective in trials if you're ever struggling with trials and you need perspective in your difficulties i encourage you to go back and read philippians chapter 1 the second main section dealt with exhortations to godly conduct exhortations to godly conduct. In chapter one, verse 27, Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the second main section, Paul is exhorting the church to worthy conduct, to conduct that is worthy of the gospel Of Christ and he applied that exhortation in two specific ways he called the church to unity in chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 11 and secondly he called the church to sanctification in chapter 2 verse 12 to verse 18 so the first section dealt with perspective and trials the second section dealt with exhortations to godly conduct and the third main section we wrapped up last time was a warning against false teaching A warning against false teaching. And this section began in chapter 3, verse 1, and ran all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul, in chapter 3, verse 2, warns against the dogs, he warns against the evildoers, he warns against those who mutilate the flesh. And then in verse 19, he warns against those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame. And so Paul warns against the twin threats of legalism and licentiousness in the church. And he calls the church to guard the purity of the gospel. So perspective in trials, exhortations to godly conduct, and a warning against false teaching. Those were the three main sections that summarize all that we have learned so far in the book of Philippians. Now all of that brings us to this passage this morning. Philippians 4 verses 1 to 9. And what Philippians 4 verses 1 to 9 really are is the conclusion to the heart of this book. It is really the conclusion to the pastoral section of this epistle. And by pastoral section, I mean the section in which Paul is exhorting the church, where he is encouraging the church, where he is instructing the church. This is really the conclusion to the heart of this epistle. Now in verse 10, Paul is going to go on and he's going to talk about how he's thankful for their gift. He's going to give final goodbyes. He's going to appreciate them for the gift that they've sent through Epaphroditus. But this passage is really the summary. It is the conclusion of all that we have learned so far in the book of Philippians. We see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, is Paul summarizes all of the main concerns And the main themes that he has unfolded for them in the book of Philippians, he summarizes those concerns into a series of practical exhortations. There are six of them. There are six final exhortations that Paul gives to the Philippian church that really sum up the main concerns that he has had throughout this epistle. Let me give them to you very quickly. You don't have to write them down. We'll cover them Uh, more slowly, but first of all, he exhorts the church to stand firm. Secondly, he exhorts the church to be unified. Third, he exhorts the church to rejoice. Fourth, he exhorts the church to pray with thanksgiving. Fifth, he exhorts the church to be pure in mind and in heart. And sixth, and finally, he exhorts the church to be imitators of godly examples. These are six final exhortations Paul has in this passage And they summarize and apply the six main concerns that he has throughout this book. So if you want to understand the book of Philippians in miniature, you read Philippians 4, verses 1 to 9. If you understand this passage, you understand really the heart of the entire epistle. If you've been with us in our study, you've been following through the book of Philippians, this is an opportunity to rehearse and to review and to recap and to really personally own all that we have learned so far in this series. And if you're just joining us in our series, this is a crash course in the book of Philippians. You're going to get all the main ideas in this book summarized and distilled into one singular passage. And so we're going to take two Sundays to look at this passage. We're going to look at the first three exhortations this morning, and then we'll look at the last three Next Sunday. So let's begin looking at the first three exhortations that Paul has on his heart. The first exhortation Paul has in verse one he exhorts the church to stand firm in Christ. He exhorts the church to stand firm in Christ. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, that verb, stand firm, really is a military call. It's military language. It describes a soldier who is standing his post, standing his ground in the midst of conflict. And it's this call to stand firm is no new call, as I said. is wrapping up the concern of Paul throughout this epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said to the church, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Philippians were enduring persecution for the cause of Christ. In chapter one, verse 30, Paul says, they were enduring the same conflict that you see in me. They were enduring suffering and hostility for the sake of the gospel. Philippi was a Roman colony. It would have been infiltrated by the cult of emperor worship. The Romans proclaimed that Caesar is Lord. And for the Christian to make the proclamation that, no, Jesus Christ is Lord would have set him up for a tremendous amount of persecution. And Paul wants the Philippians to stand their ground to stay at their post, to not be moved, to not be intimidated, to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We know in chapter 3 that the threat was not only persecution from unbelievers, but it was threat from false teachers in the church, those who would proclaim the name of Christ and yet pervert the gospel, the doctrine of the word of God. There were dogs out there who were perverting the church through legalism. There were enemies of the cross of Christ who were perverting the the gospel through licentiousness. And Paul wants the church to stand firm in Christ. He wants them to be unmoved by these threats and to stay at their ground. Now, look, this is a military call. This is a strong call. This is a call to courage. It's a call to perseverance. It's a call to, to courageousness but it does not come with a military tone. The tone is syrupy, almost sentimental. It is filled with just with words of loving affection. Paul says in verse one, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. I mean if, you, if you're just reading this text, you might miss the military call because it's just so loaded down with affectionate language. Paul is just expressing his love for the church is because he loved the church that he wanted the church to stand firm in Christ. He was a shepherd who had a heart for his sheep, and he was not a military commander barking out orders. He was a pastor who was seeking the welfare of his sheep. So he calls the Philippians, my brothers, those who, you are in my spiritual family. We have one Father who loves us so. He says, You are those whom I love and long for. I'm in prison and I'm away from you, but I can't wait till the day that we see each other face to face. And then he says that the church is his joy and his crown. They are the reason for his boasting on the future day of evaluation. They are the evidence that his ministry was not in vain. And he loads together this string of affectionate language and he says, stand firm in the Lord. And then he can't help but add at the end, my beloved, because he's just so filled with love for this church that he's privileged to shepherd. Paul understand the love of Christ for the church. And because he understood that Christ loved the church with such a passionate affection, his own heart was filled with affection for the church he says in chapter 1 verse 8 i long for you all with the affection of christ jesus the affection you see in me is the affection of christ for you and so he says stand firm in the lord stand firm in christ brothers and sisters i would seek to balance that that balance of toughness and tenderness that's found in this text I remember one pastor used to tell tell me, a a pastor needs to have a a skin of toughness and a heart of tenderness. That was the heart of Paul. I mean, there were times where he was just strong and he was direct and he he, he called the church to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, but it was all balanced by this tender heart in which he says, you are my beloved. You are my joy and crown. I long for you all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's with that same spirit that I will come to you this morning and plead with you as a church that we are called to stand firm in Christ. What this is, is in this text, it's a reminder to us that the church is in the midst of a spiritual battle. We are in the midst of a spiritual conflict and we are called to be good soldiers of Christ and to stand our ground in the midst of a hostile world. Ephesians 6, verse 12 identifies the source behind this battle. Paul says, Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the rulers and authorities of this present darkness. He reminds us this is not a human battle. It is a spiritual one. It is a spiritual conflict with a spiritual enemy. We must use spiritual weapons to fight this battle. And the New Testament reminds us repeatedly that we are called to stand firm in Christ, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 13, Paul says, Take up the full armor of God, and having done all, to stand firm. I would remind you this morning that we are not in only in the midst of a spiritual battle, but God has given us the resources to stand firm in this battle. God has given us the power and the strength and all that we need to stand firm in the conflict that we find in this world. Christianity is peace with God and it is hostility with the world. Christianity is acceptance with God and is rejection by unbelievers. Christianity is being The enmity between us and God has been removed, but there is an enmity between us and the enemy. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But God has given to us everything we need to stand firm in Christ. He's given to us the full armor of God which is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And above all this, we have the weapon of prayer by which we destroy destroy strongholds. God, if I could put it this way, God hasn't given us a little BB gun to take into the fight. that We're just throwing little pellets at Satan. No, God has given to us a tank. And he just said, get in the tank, get in the armor that I provided for you, and in this armor, stand firm in Christ. Many of us, we are not standing firm because we're not using the right weapons. We're fighting the battle with human ingenuity. We're fighting the battle with human creativity. And God says, no, I have the weapons of God, the weapon of the word of God, the weapon of prayer, and the church needs to wield these weapons in order to stand firm in Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now some of you are saying, Dan, you know, this sounds like something that maybe you're overreacting here. I mean, I live in Orange County. I live in Southern California. The sun is shining. It was a little bit windy this weekend. But overall, I mean, I get to go to the, the beach in January. It's, life is good. I don't sense the war. I mean, doesn't it seem like, like uh, you're overreacting here, talking about the spiritual forces of darkness and this wickedness, and Satan roaring around like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour? Yeah. Well, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you with the heart of Paul, because you are my beloved. You are my joint crown. I would encourage you that if you are not aware of the spiritual battle in your life, you are probably not doing a good job standing firm in it. And that one of Satan's great strategies to deceive us in this battle is to deceive us into thinking that there is no battle. We live, admittedly, in a society where we do not face the intense persecution that other societies do. I know many of you are, have been persecuted for your faith. Many of you have been insulted and for, forsaken by friends and family for your faith, and I don't want to minimize any of that. At the same time, we must confess that we don't experience the same hostility in in communistic countries where they meet in secret societies in which being a Christian can land you in jail or even cost you your life. We don't experience that type of intense hostility, but I believe that the assault against the church in our context, the assault of the church against us in Orange County is not so much the threat of intense persecution, but it is in the threat of intense seduction. If you persecute the church, the church will scatter and spread everywhere and it will only cause it to grow. But if you seduce the church to love the world, if you seduce the church by the lust of the eyes and the material things of life and the boastful pride of life, if you seduce the church's affection so that their heart is no longer pure and sincere in their devotion for Christ, you will make the church like the world and the church will lose its power. And I believe that that is the assault against the church in Orange County and in Southern California. And that is the threat that we need to stand firm. We need to stand firm. We need to wield the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God and we need to say we will not be distracted. We will not give in to worldliness. We will fight this with with everything that God has given to us. We will stand firm using the armor of God and we will we will seek, it, but with everything that God has given to us by his grace, to cultivate a heart of sincerity and purity and love for Christ. Paul wants the church to stand firm in the spiritual battle. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is my heart for you. Is I want you to stand firm in the spiritual battle. Why? Because, because we as leaders of the church, we love you because you are our joy and crown, because you, you are our boasting, you are our beloved. We want you to stand firm in Christ. I remind you that greater is He who is in us than He was in the world. I remind you that Christ has come, He has died, He has risen again, He has won the victory over sin, over death, and over Satan. I remind you that the victory is preordained; that one day Satan will be thrown to the lake of fire. I remind you that even Satan's activities in this world are sovereignly bounded by what God determines; that He goes no further than what God sovereignly allows. And I remind you that God even uses Satan doing his worst to accomplish his best. At the cross, Satan did his worst in nailing Jesus to the cross, and God accomplished his best in accomplishing the redemption for the world. And so Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. That is in Christ. In chapter three, verse 20, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you see the phrase Lord in this text, it's a direct reference to Jesus Christ. Paul says, stand firm in Christ not in your ingenuity, not in your creativity, not in your intellect, not in your wisdom, in Christ, that your gaze and your focus be fixed on him. And as you receive the grace that is in Christ, stand firm in the Lord. You might be saying, Dan, I understand this call. I understand the spiritual battle. You might be like me. I wake up every day with a cold heart toward Christ. I wake up every day needing to fight for my affections for Christ. I mean, I wake up every day needing to fight my flesh, fight the temptations of the world, fight the temptations to have my heart led astray. I wake up every day needing to fight for my marriage, to fight for my relationship with my kids. This, this is a battle. It doesn't just happen. You might be saying, Dan, I'm, I'm there with you. I, w- I want to engage. I want to be a good soldier of Christ. I want to get in the tank. I want to use the full armor of God. But, Dan, I'm just, I'm just w- weary. I mean, the battle seems to be Relentless. I'm going on and on, day after day. There seems to be no end. There seems to be no place where this ends. Is there any hope for me as a Christian? And I would point you to verse one, where Paul says that single word, therefore, my brothers, stand firm in the Lord. He takes us back to chapter three, verse 20, that we are waiting a savior from heaven who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, therefore, Christian. Stand firm in the Lord. Christ is coming. Christ will reign. He will come from heaven to earth. He will establish his glory upon this earth. His return is imminent. It is soon. Therefore, in light of your future hope, stand firm in the Lord. You know, there's two kinds of soldiers. There's a soldier who has no hope, and there's a soldier who's filled with hope. There's a soldier who knows that the Calvary is right around the corner, just 15 more minutes, and the Calvary will be here. And there's a soldier whose army has been defeated and he has no hope for his future. And they fight in two completely different ways. And Paul is saying, as those who have our eyes fixed on our future hope of Christ's return, we are to stand firm. In the Lord. And would you notice that little adverb, thus? It means in this way or in this manner, in the manner of those whose hearts are filled with a future hope of Christ's glorious return, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. We are those whose hearts are set on the second coming of Jesus to this earth. And so there is hope for us as we engage in the spiritual battle. Brothers and sisters, I would just ask you this morning, are you engaging in the spiritual battle that you are in as a Christian? Are you engaging in the spiritual battle that is before us? Are you, can I ask you, are you living your life with a wartime mentality? Because if you're living your life with a peacetime mentality, then brothers and sisters, I'd plead with you from this text, that you are my joy and my crown, my reason for rejoicing, And I want you to stand firm in the Lord. I don't want you to be seduced by the world. I don't want you to be (coughs) seduced by, by have your heart led astray from the purity of your devotion to Jesus Christ. I want you to stand firm and God has given you all the resources to stand firm. And again, I just encourage you that if you need hope, If you need courage, if you need confidence, look to the future hope of Jesus Christ. I was thinking this week that Jesus Christ is coming again, that Jesus Christ is returning to this earth. And I was thinking, what if it was today? What if it was today? And who says that it can't be today? His return is imminent, and he will return soon. And we are eagerly awaiting a Savior from heaven. Therefore, my brothers, stand Firm in Christ. So the first exhortation Paul gives in this text is an exhortation to stand firm in Christ. Let's move to the second exhortation found in verse 2. He exhorts the church to agree in Christ. To agree in Christ. Not only stand firm in Christ, but to agree in Christ. Verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's like going from this great wartime epic where there's all these soldiers and they're clashing together, and then you go into the second half of the double feature, and it's this quiet movie between two individuals. Or it's like listening to a great rock record that begins with this epic uh epic uh, song that just has all sorts of uh, loud sounds going on. And then the second song is this quiet interlude, a duet between two people. Paul moves from this great theme of standing firm in Christ, of being good soldiers of Christ, of engaging in the spiritual battle to this very practical concern, a housekeeping concern in the body of Christ. Christ. And it is a concern about two women in the church named Yodia and Syntyche. Now we don't know too much about Yodia and Syntyche, but what we do know is found in this text. These were faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were not rabble rousers in the church. They were not spiritual flakes. They were not those whom you would doubt their spiritual salvation. These were faithful, committed, passionate Christians who were in the local church. Paul calls them in verse three that they are fellow workers with me in the gospel. That's an expression of affection. That's an expression of affirmation. He he used that term to describe Epaphroditus in chapter two. He says, these are fellow workers with me in the gospel. And furthermore, he says in verse three that they have labored side by side with me in the gospel ministry. The word "soon athleo in this text refers to engaging in an athletic contest. These are women who laid down their lives for the gospel ministry. They were passionate about the gospel. They sacrificed for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul in this text not only affirms the sincerity of their service, but he also affirms the greatest affirmation of all, the genuineness of their salvation. He says in verse 3 that their names are written in the book of life, the register of the redeemed, the book which contains the names of all the saints, the book which was written before the foundation of the world. Paul says, Yodia and Syntyche are genuine Christians. They are beloved of God, they are chosen by the Father, they are passionate and faithful servants of the gospel. And yet it appears in this text that these two women were having a hard time agreeing in the Lord. They were having a hard time coming to relational unity. And what we learn in this text is that relational disunity is not, it's not a struggle just for the spiritually immature. It's not a struggle for those who are only weak in the faith. Even the strongest, most committed Christians can and will struggle with relational disunity. You remember in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas came to such a sharp disagreement on what to do with John Mark that they went their separate ways. And I surely don't want to assign sin to that text if the text doesn't say that it's there, but I would say that even the most committed Christians can have a difficult time agreeing in the Lord. Now you would think that Paul, in singling out these women, in naming names, that this would be an embarrassing thing for Yodia and Syntyche in the church. Remember, this is a real letter written to a real church with real people, and it was read aloud so that others could hear what Paul was saying. But the language of Paul in this text is just, I just can't emphasize this enough, it's just so warm and it's just so affirming. I mean, he just spends all of verse 3 just affirming their faithfulness and just appreciating them for their labor. He affirms the genuineness of their salvation, and then when he gets to the exhortation itself, it is just so gracious and so very gentle. You'll notice that verse 2 does not read, I command Yodia, and I command Sintiki to agree in the Lord. It does not read, I order Yodia, and I order Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul could have done that. He was an apostle. He had all the authority to do that if he needed to. But instead, he uses this very gentle word. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche. The word entreat could literally be translated to Beg. Paul is not up there on his apostolic high horse shouting down orders to Yodi and Syntyche. He's on his knees before them. And he's just appealing to them as a brother in Christ. This is another example of what I call Paul's pattern of apostolic restraint. I mean, the man just restrained himself from using his authority as an apostle as much as possible. He could have gotten in Yodia's kitchen. He could have gotten in Syntyche's kitchen and just said, I order you to agree. I've done this with my girls. My girls are fighting. She stole my stuffed animal. She stole my toy. And I get them together and say, I'm your dad. You apologize. You apologize. You guys hug. Get along. Why? Because I'm your dad and I say so. And I use my authority with my daughters. And Paul could have taken that approach with these two women, but he doesn't. He just appeals to them in love. And he, he really begs them and encourages them. And would you notice in verse 2 that he doesn't take sides? I mean, it would have been real easy for Paul to say, well, is right and Sintiki's wrong. And Sintiki you just need to apologize to Yodia. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, well, Syntyche has good arguments and Yodia, you just need to get along. He doesn't do that. He's just so equal in his treatment of both Yodia and Syntyche. One commentator says this text is like, he turns to Yodia and pleads with her. And then equally, he turns to Syntyche and pleads with her. You look at the language of the text, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. It's equal treatment both ways. And he's just begging these women to agree in the Lord. I'm sure Syntyche thought that Yodia should make the first move. I'm sure Syntyche was sitting back and saying, well, Yodia should be the one to apologize to me. And I'm sure that Yodia thought, the other way and Paul just appeals to them both to agree in the Lord and as an expression of his pastoral concern he calls a third party in to help these women in verse 3 he says yes and treat true comrade he says I ask you also true companion help these women who have labored side by side with me in the faith of the gospel. There's been a lot of discussion over who this true comrade was. Some say it was Dr. Luke who might have been in the Philippian congregation. Others say it might have been an elder in the Philippian church. Some say the term comrade should go untranslated. Paul is speaking to a man named Sijugas whose name just happens to mean comrade. We don't know. I don't know who this person was. I do know this, that Paul was asking a third party to help these women in the church. And he desired the unity between these two women. Why? Because he loved them so much and he appreciated them so dearly. Now listen to me very carefully because this is really the point of the whole thing. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? What is Paul calling for in this passage? What is he telling Yodia and Syntyche to do I mean, is he saying to Yodi and Syntyche, you guys need to agree on every single opinion, every single issue. You need to hash everything out until you come to complete agreement. Is that what he's saying to these two women? Because if he is saying that, that's a very tall order. What exactly is Paul calling these women to do? Well, the word agree in verse two is the Greek term phroneo. It's the same Greek term used back in chapter two, verse two. When Paul said, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says, I want you to be of the same phroneo." And the word phroneo could be translated mind or better yet, mindset. It's really referring to a perspective in life. An attitude in which you view others. When Paul says, I want you to be of the same mind, he's calling for a shared mindset in how you view The body of christ and what kind of mindset is paul calling for in chapter 2 verse 5 he says using the same word have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross if i could boil this down really simply the agreement that paul was calling these two women to was not so much an agreement of intellect as it was an agreement of attitude. Paul was calling these women to share the mindset of Christ, to share the perspective of Christ, to humble themselves before one another and to view one another with a lowly spirit. Listen, if you and I, the only way we can come to unity is we agree about every issue. Agree about every opinion. We hash out every single differences then well that's going to be a tough order. And that may be what we need to do at times, but that is not what Paul is calling for in this text. What Paul is calling for is something I think that's much more reasonable and much more gracious. He's calling for these women to approach one another with the mind of humility. Husbands, the issue when you struggle with your wife is not that you guys need to agree on every single issue. The issue is you guys need to agree on your attitude toward one another. You guys need to come with a a humble attitude. You can agree on the issues and disagree in the attitude, and you don't have unity. And the flip is true. You can agree in your attitude and disagree on the issues, and there's unity because in the end you're just trying to be humble and you're just trying to serve one another and lay down your rights. What is Paul saying to Yodi and Sintiki? I believe he's saying simply humble yourself. Humble yourself. Approach one another with a spirit of lowliness. And when you can't get any lower, humble yourself some more. Listen, brothers and sisters, we can never humble ourselves enough. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Listen, I don't want to distract from the word of God this morning, but I do believe that it's appropriate for leaders to confess where we have failed. One of the things about Preaching the Word of God verse by verse is you have to preach the passages that you're struggling with, that you're failing to live up to. And this is one passage that I have failed to live up to. I have failed in my own life to have a Christ like heart and a humble spirit. And because of my pride, I've contributed to relational conflict even here in this church. And this is a passage that I believe the Lord needed me to hear, that I'm seeking to repent. Even this week with my wife, we had a disagreement. I tried to get agreement by pressing the issues. And the Lord is reminding me in this text, that's not how you come to unity with your spouse. You come to unity in agreeing in your attitude, not just in your intellect. Because of my lack of Christ-like humility, I have experienced this type of relational disagreement. And so this is one passage in my own life that I'm seeking to hear with all my heart. I'm seeking to repent. I'm seeking to humble myself. I'm trusting in God's forgiveness of me and also the forgiveness of those that I've offended. And I trust that you will respond to this passage in the same way. In hearing God's call, not only to stand firm in Christ, but hearing God's call to agree in Christ. And that brings us to the third and the final exhortation Paul has on his heart. And the third exhortation is to rejoice in Christ. To rejoice in Christ. Paul summarizes everything that he has to say in this letter, and he says it really is real simple. I want you to stand firm in Christ. I want you to agree in Christ. And then, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to rejoice in Christ. I want you to rejoice in all that he is and all that he has done, all that he has accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, all that he would do for us in his second coming. I want your hearts to rejoice in Christ. Christ and in verse 4 he just summarizes all of the, the, the real, the theme of the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is the epistle of joy. Paul has said throughout this epistle that nothing is gonna steal my joy. Imprisonment is is not gonna steal my joy. Critics aren't gonna steal my joy. Execution isn't gonna steal my joy. I rejoice and I will rejoice because I have a relationship with Christ. And so in chapter four, verse four, he calls the church to emulate his example. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. You know that call is rejoice in the Lord. It is not rejoice in your circumstances. It's not rejoice because things are going well for you. It's not rejoice because things are going your way. It is rejoice in Christ. It is rejoice in what he has done. It is rejoice in who he is. And if you rejoice, your joy is founded in who he is, you can rejoice always because he never changes. Because his work never changes. His blood never loses its efficacy. His resurrection never loses his power. The hope of his second coming never loses its diminishing force in our lives. Christ is always the same, and so our joy can remain the same because our joy is not in this present world. Our joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as if Paul wants to anticipate future objections that someone's going to say in the church, but wait a second, Paul, my life's messed up. Wait a second, Paul, you don't know about my trials. Wait a second, Paul, you, don't, you didn't experience my disappointments. Paul says emphatically, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, again, I will say, rejoice. There's a defiance to this verse. My joy will defy everything that will seek to diminish it. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Verse five, he adds a corollary. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's the acknowledgement of the Philippians' suffering. They might be saying, but Paul, we're suffering. We're being persecuted for our faith. How can we rejoice in Christ? And he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word refers to a sweet and gracious spirit that is expressed in times of mistreatment. It's when you're being mistreated and when you're being insulted and when you're being treated unjustly and you're able to say to the world with a gracious and sweet spirit that I have joy in Christ and I will not retaliate. That is the spirit of reasonableness in verse 5. And then Paul, verse five, gives one of the sweetest words of affirmation that any Christian could hear. He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That could refer to spatial nearness or temporal nearness. It could refer to the Lord is near in terms of his presence. His presence is with us and he will never forsake us. Or it could refer to the Lord is near in terms of his return. That he is soon to return to this earth. And I believe that the context would lead us to the second view. Then chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says that we await from heaven the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says the Lord is near. I believe Paul is referring here to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's reminding the church that Christ's return is near. That Jesus is near coming soon. In the words of Revelation 1 verse 3, the time is near. In the words of Revelation 22 verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. And so we stand firm in the Lord. We agree in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord because we live in the light of Christ's soon return. This passage is a summary of Paul's heart for the church. This is all of Paul's concern for the church distilled into a series of pregnant exhortations. If you want to know what Paul wanted for the church, he wanted these three things with all his heart. He wanted the church to stand firm, he wanted the church to agree, and he wanted the church to rejoice. I'll say to us that the Christian life is not complicated. It is difficult. We are in a war, but it is, the instructions are clear. It is not complicated. We are to stand firm. We are to agree, and we are to rejoice. And it's really that last exhortation that's going to lead us to the Lord's table this morning, because Paul wants us to rejoice in the Lord. He wants us to rejoice in Christ. He wants us to remember all that Christ is, he wants us to remember all that Christ has done, and he wants our hearts to be filled with joy because of the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. That is our heart as we come to the Lord's table, as we take the elements, the bread, and the cup, we come to remember Christ. We come to have our eyes focused on Christ We come to rehearse the great works that he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And we come to remember his love for us, which was expressed at the cross 2,000 years ago. And having remembered all that he is and all that he has done, we desire to rejoice in him. Brothers and sisters, as you come to the Lord's table, I pray that your hearts will be filled with joy in Christ. I pray that this time as we take the bread and the cup would be a time that would fill your heart with such a steely, persevering joy that no matter what you face in this coming week, that joy will never be taken away because you know that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and his love is a love that will never be taken away. And I remind you as we come to the Lord's table that we not only Remember the first coming of Jesus to this earth. But as we take the bread and the cup, we are anticipating the second coming of Jesus to this earth. The Lord is near. First Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward and lead us into some songs of praise. We're going to break the bread take of the bread and the cup let us take this time to remember christ and to rejoice in all that he has done would you pray with me and come to the lord's table Well, father we thank you for your word this morning it is your word that is our spiritual food It is your word that nourishes our souls. And it is your word that clarifies all the issues of life. Lord, our lives are filled with many things and yet the essence of our Christian life is not complicated. We are called to stand firm. We are called to agree. We are called to rejoice. And we are called to do all these things in the Lord, in Christ. Lord, I pray for our church that we would never be moved from the simplicity of devotion that we have for Christ. I pray that, Lord, nothing would steal our joy what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And as we come to the elements this morning, Lord, bring our hearts to intentionally, to thoughtfully, to quietly remember Christ Have our eyes fixed on the cross of Calvary where Jesus died for our sins. That our joy may be full as we come from this time. Thank you for this time. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.